good to see your faces and worship with you here this morning and prepare our hearts for Christmas. I'm Melody, I'm one of your pastors here, and it is my honor to bring our Behold series to a close this morning. And um, like Brett said, it's a special Sunday. It's the last Sunday of 2019. It's the last Sunday before Christmas. So I hope today that we will take a moment to think back and remember some of the important things that happened in 2019 in our own personal lives. Think about the commingled reality of our existence, of the good things and the broken things and the hope of all that is to come, right? The future wholeness that's woven into our stories. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to do today. But it's also the last message in our Behold series. And this has been a really beautiful series. I would encourage you guys, if you haven't listened to all of the messages, to definitely check them out on, the, on our podcast. But the first week, Benjamin p- kicked us off with a gentle but powerful invitation to behold. To behold Jesus, to slow down, and to take in the reality of the story that we're living in and of the Savior who came for us, right? And then Brett, the next week, taught us about what it means to marvel, what it means to personally connect with the story of Jesus and to begin to see him everywhere, to see our Jesus everywhere, right? And then last week, Benjamin taught us that what follows from that experience is this belief, this belief that changes how we see. And so that brings us today to adoration. The last piece of the beholding of Jesus is a response of adoration, is our response to adore him. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So last Christmas, I was looking back at my my message from our um, series last year, The Word, and I remembered a story that I told you guys about my daughter Kayla who, after we had decorated the whole house for Christmas, it was quite the extravaganza last year of decorating. She was coming down the stairs, and she stopped right at the turn of the stairs as the stairs come down and turn, and she stopped there, and she said, Mom, this is the perfect place. From here, you can see the whole thing. And it just gave me this like beautiful perspective of, like, that's what Jesus is. He's the place where we can see the whole thing. It was such a beautiful experience of Christmas last year for me and a beautiful experience of decorating our home to prepare for the season. And so I was reflecting on that when I was preparing our home this year for Christmas. So this year I have a bit of a different story to tell you. You can probably assume there was a reason why I told the one from last year. Bit of a different story, so prepare yourselves if you're easily grossed out. It was a different sort of a year. So we were going about our usual tradition in our home of decorating the day after Thanksgiving, and we had held back the decorating. I think we were all like in the Christmas spirit early this year, and so we like wanted to decorate early, but we held it back day after Thanksgiving. That is when we decorate our home for Christmas. Great. And Chris's parents always come to help us decorate. It's like this thing that we do. So we were going about the day, and I was in our bedroom unpacking the box for the ornaments that go on the tree in our bedroom. Yes, we have a tree in our bedroom. I don't know how this has happened, but it's there. Anyway, um, so I was unpacking the ornaments, and I hear Chris yelling, get out of the way, Brenna, and like urgently yelling, get out of the way, and I'm like, what? why is he yelling at her to get out of the way? Like, that's excessive. So I like walk out to the family room to see what's going on, and I see Chris 
carrying the large box of our Christmas tree, running through the house, like holding it like a battering ram, running for the sliding glass door. And I'm like, what is going on? He's like yelling at Brendan to get out of the way. He's like, a giant battering ram running through the house. And I am wondering what is going on. So I see him go to the sliding glass door and it was locked. And he's like, oh, he was so mad. So he set the box down, flings open the door, and he runs it outside. And I'm like, oh my goodness, there's, there's like something on the box. And at first I thought it was a frog because that would be my personal worst nightmare because frogs are the grossest. Top of the list would be frog. I mean, like maybe it's a lizard. Lizards are fine. I can deal with lizards, whatever. So I look down to the floor of my home and it is not a frog and it is not a lizard. It is the world's largest cockroach on my floor, in my house, on my Christmas decorating day. And Chris is outside throwing the box down, and Brenna is screaming her face off. So Chris runs back in, flings off his shoe, smashes the cockroach. Thank God he got it quickly. So then Yvonne, his mom, is like, what's going on? So she comes over to see what it is. This Guts are everywhere. And so she starts gagging, like literal gagging. I'm like, everybody calm down. Everybody calm down. So we clean up the cockroach. But we wonder to ourselves, might there be more? So we look. Although, thank God, the box was out on the porch outside of my home with the door shut. We shut the door and locked it. We locked Chris outside <laughs> with the box and peered through the window as he began to unpack our beautiful Christmas tree that we had just purchased the year before, I might add. That was infested, infested people with cockroaches. It was the nightmare to end all nightmares. The children were screaming, we won't have a Christmas tree, because I'm like, there's no way that's coming. There's no, we can never find them all. Like, we're not bringing that back in this house. No matter what, we'll never find them all. So it is banned from our home. The children are screaming they're not going to have a Christmas tree. Yvonne is still like dealing with her nausea. And it's like a total disaster of Christmas decorating that you could possibly imagine. So, and I was, I don't, I am not the hero of this story. I was very disturbed as well. Chris is really the hero of this story because he dealt with the tree and his dad. So anyways, we decided we were not going to rid the tree of all cockroaches. So we left it out on the porch and sent the boys to the store to get a new tree so that our home could still be beautiful for Christmas. Thank God for that. And throughout the day, we would note some creatures crawling on our porch. Um, and one, I will just tell you this, because I don't know if you guys have, any, have ever seen this, but there was a white cockroach, pure white. And I was like, it's an albino cockroach. What is this? Or maybe it's covered with eggs. I don't know. Do cockroaches have eggs? We were freaking out. The kids were freaking out. We looked it up. Apparently, it, was, it had just molted. And apparently... They, you can only see a cockroach in that state for like a few hours of its whole life. And usually people don't see them because they usually do it in a private place. The internet said that if you ever see one that has, that's white, it's been recently disturbed. <laughs> we were like, yep, there's a lot of disturbance going on with that one. So anyways, that was also squished and died. And we killed a lot of cockroaches. Anyway, so we get a new tree. Now I do have to finish the story, even though the end of it doesn't have to do with my message. But... This is what happened at the end of this story. So we call the bug people. We're like, carpet bomb the garage. I don't know where they came from, but they are not allowed anywhere in the vicinity. Kill them all. So they do the garage, and then they come out, and they spray the tree. And he was like, don't keep this tree, because you'll, you'll never know if they're all gone. So 
get rid of it. Great, it's trash night tonight. We'll put the tree out with the trash and it'll be gone. It'll never, we'll never have to deal with that again. So we get up the next morning before the trash had come to be picked up and the tree was gone. Somebody took it. Somebody came and refuged our tree. And I feel really upset about that part, but I thought I'd confess it in front of all of you. <laughs> but they sprayed it with a lot of poison. I don't know. Anyway, that's a very sad end to the story. But this is how my Christmas season started this year, you guys. It was really stressful and traumatic for all of us and the children. And I will tell you, it took a lot of conscious effort for me to pull myself back into a place of adoration rather than um, wanting to burn down my house because that's really how I felt at that time, right? So to come back <laughs> to the baby in the manger, right? But adoration really is what Christmas is all about. It really is. It's not just celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's this response of adoration for what that birth really means. That's really what Christmas is. Because when we behold him and we marvel and we believe, then our only response can be adoration. So today we're going to look at the story of the ones whom we're always told came to adore the Christ child, came to adore the baby. Do you guys know who it is? Anyone? Anyone? They were on the picture. The Magi, that's right, the wise men, the wise men that came to worship and adore the baby Jesus. So we're going to read their story in Matthew 2 from the ESV. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has, come, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here we have the story of the wise men. And we've heard it read at Christmas after Christmas for many years, as long as we've been around the church, I'm sure. And even if we haven't been around the church, this is a traditional Christmas story, right? And it's funny that so often people represent the wise men as being at the birth of Jesus because they were clearly not, as according to this text, it was actually a couple years later when they came to adore and worship Jesus. But nevertheless, it is a beautiful and important story for several reasons, which we are not going to get into all of today, but we're going to pick a couple. <clears throat> it's also interesting that these men were not connected to the nation of Israel in any way. They were Greek astro astrologers. They were pagan magi who read the stars and came to find this child. 
that they thought was going to be a king. So they had no logical connection to worship this king, and yet here they were. They journeyed across the desert, and they brought gifts, and they worshiped this baby. And in fact, they were filled, it says, with exceedingly great joy about the whole thing, right? So today we're going to pause at the story of the Magi, and we're going to see what God wants to teach us and invite us into as we behold. So maybe as I read this story today, something jumped out at you, maybe? If it did, I would encourage you to think about it, wonder why it might have jumped out at you, ask God. I feel like he'll reveal that to you. But I'll tell you what jumped out at me, because I read this story in 10 or 12 different translations while I was thinking and praying about what piece of the story of the wise men felt like the most important for us to hear today. And I was praying, what would clarify my understanding of adoration? What part of this story would clarify my understanding of what it means to adore? And what stood out to me were these words. They fell down. They fell down. They fell down and worshipped him. So let's look at this word in the Greek. The ESV translates it as worship. Some versions translate it as adore. But let's look at the heart behind the word. So the word is proskuneo. And the definition is to do reverence to. But the usage is, I go on my knees to. Do obeisance to worship. Properly to kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior. To worship, ready to fall down, prostrate oneself, to adore on one's knees. So we're going to pause today and we're going to think about this idea of adoration in the context of this particular word, proskuneo, of falling down, of falling on our knees, of prostrating ourselves before God. What does that mean to us today? Because there's something very ancient about that practice, right? About that physical practice, about that action. And it seems like the Bible is always talking about people falling down on their faces or their knees or whatever. And, and to rulers, to kings, to people, before God, before Jesus, it's all over in the scriptures. Because that's how the kings and the emperors and the leaders of the day, and really throughout the ages, that is how humans have shown reverence to those whom they esteem, right? Or that is how the kings and the leaders have been greeted, is this bowing in reverence or respect or fear or honor, right? Now, in our modern day, we don't do a lot of that, really. Bowing or kneeling or groveling on the floor to people, even our most respected leaders, right? Some cultures still do, and some religions, and some, you know, some Christians are still very in touch with the physicality of their worship, and I think that we do kneel before God, physically, right? I will frequently get on my knees when I'm at home praying by myself. I will be on my knees or on my face before God because there's something about tying the physical aspect of what your body is doing to the heart posture that really helps you to focus and connect and be present with God. But in the story of the wise men, it wasn't just that they bowed. It wasn't just that they kneeled. They fell. They fell down, right? They fell to the ground and worshipped him. So as we look at the life of Jesus, we see a lot more people falling down, right? There are many stories of the people who fall before Jesus. 
In Mark 5 alone, there's three different ones. The demon-possessed man falls at Jesus' feet and begs for healing. And then a few verses later, Jairus falls at his feet and begs for healing for his daughter who's dying. And then a few verses after that, the woman with the issue of blood falls at his feet and touches the hem of his robe, begging for healing, right? All of these stories of people falling before Jesus. And in every gospel, we read these stories of people falling down, from the harlot with the alabaster box who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair, to the mother of the girl with the unclean spirit, to the lepers and the lame and the blind and the deaf, to Mary, who falls at his feet when she's begging and weeping because Lazarus has died. People fall before Jesus. This is the posture of people who encounter Jesus. So let's think about why. Yes, it was a custom of the day, but it's more than that. When we behold him, when we truly see him, when we marvel that the great God of the universe is personally present with us, and when we believe that he is who he says he is, then our only response, our human response, is the adoration of proscuneo, is falling down on our face, on our knees before him. Our friend Zach Elliott wrote about this in his book, Now I See, and he said it very well, so we're going to read it here. He says, we look up and see Jesus. He is now our vision. We begin to grasp who and what it is that we were looking for, and it drops us low, face in the dirt, unsettled and breathless in wonder and awe that the true thing is true. We know it is true because we see him. There is a pressure here, a weight. Or maybe it is more of a gravity, one that pulls us down to the dust of the earth, reforming and recalibrating us in our experience of life as it was designed to be lived. In the moment that we are brought low in the presence of the holy, we simultaneously experience a lifting of the weight of the world. It no longer rests upon us, for we are not our own gods. He is God. He is God, and we are not. Our past is forgiven, cleansed, redeemed. Our present is provided for, witnessed, upheld. Our future is known by the one who is love. We are his. He is ours. We are safe, accepted, and cherished. We are no longer at the center, and we are not alone. That is the posture of proscuneo, the posture of adoration that is so hugely important to our humanity, so hugely important to the way that we were created. We created beings in search of union with our creator, right? We're made to experience this gravity, this weight, this falling down before him. But as Zach wrote about, Proscuneo is not about submission or subordination or trying to make ourselves low. It's not about punishment or about showing our frailty, right? It's not about showing our failure. Zach goes on to put it like this. He says, we are overcome. We fall to our knees, weeping in the magnificence of the truth that is before us. The answer to his questions opens the door to life like we have never known before, life to the full. 
You are Jesus, the one I have been searching and longing for, the one I was made by and for, the voice in the darkness, the whisper on the wind. And here is where the story gets even better. We see the selflessness of his love, and we know that we are forgiven. We're forgiven for the mistakes we've made. We're forgiven for allowing ourselves to become our own gods. We're forgiven for the ways that we have grieved the creator. And we understand as we look to him that his desire is not to punish us for those things. His desire is to set us free. Last week, Pastor Benjamin talked about Simeon's prophecy. Do you guys remember? Simeon, the old man in the temple who had been waiting for the Messiah to come. Maybe the first person who really understood why Jesus was actually here. Simeon. And he prophesied a beautiful prophecy over the young child. And last week we studied the whole prophecy. But this week I'm going to call our attention back to one little phrase that jumped out at me. In Luke 2.34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now some versions translate this to mean some are going to fall and others are going to rise. And maybe that's partially what Simeon meant by that. But when I read this, in this translation with these words, I think that this is a retelling, another telling, another foreshadowing of the one true narrative of redemption. Right? If the response, the human response, is to fall on our faces before Jesus, maybe that's not the only piece. Right? Jesus doesn't want us to just fall down and adore him. He wants to help us rise again. Because his story is our story. He fell and rose again. His story is about falling and rising. So our story is about falling and rising. Rising to life again. Rising to life anew. Life as it was meant to Let's think of all these stories we've heard of people falling before Jesus. The lame and the deaf and the broken and the possessed and the afraid and the repentant. They fell on their faces before him. And what was his response to that? Let's look in Luke and see. Luke chapter 17. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, Rise and go your way. 
Your faith has made you well. Rise and go. Rise, church. Can we pause to take a moment and marvel at that beauty, at that grace and favor and scandal? Can you picture Jesus reaching down to you and picture the grace and mercy in his eyes as he looks into yours and says, rise and go? Because that's what he longs to say to all of us when we fall before him. He forgives the woman that the Pharisees wanted to stone. He helps Peter stand again when he sinks into the waves. He brings Lazarus back from the dead. This is the story that he came to tell. We don't just fall, we rise. He forgives and he restores and he redeems every time. And this is why we adore him. This is why we fall down before him. Those aren't just words. That's the response of the human soul to Jesus. Right? Again, after his death, let's look again. When the women had met the angel at the tomb and they had been told that Jesus was risen, what happened? So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Can't take hold of his feet if you're not falling on the ground in front of him, right? They took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. It's the same message. Rise and go. Do not be afraid. Rise and go. So let's think back to the wise men. These pagan astrologers who journeyed from the east and felt exceedingly great joy when they found Jesus. They fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. The reason that they fell to the ground that day might not on the outside appearance seem like the same reason that the lepers fell or that the deaf fell, or that the harlots fell in front of Jesus. And it may not appear on the outside to be the same reason that his beloved disciples fell in front of Jesus, right? The motivations for those fallings seem different. Maybe the external reasons and motivations don't have to be the same, right? Maybe it's wonder that makes us fall on our face before him? Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's desperation. Maybe it's weariness. Maybe it's hope. Maybe it's exceedingly great joy. Maybe the reason doesn't matter. Maybe it just matters that we fall. And maybe all he wants to do is help us rise again. That's the story he came to tell. That's the life that he lived. And that's the mercy and grace that's in his eyes every time we stop and look into them. So what about you? Think about your story for a moment this morning. What could be your reason today 
to fall at Jesus' feet, to fall to your knees, to your face, to fall. What's your reason today? I was thinking about my different memories of Christmas over the years, and last year was the peaceful perspective at the turn of the stairs, where from here you can see the whole thing, seeing from the point of view of Jesus. This year it was a Christmas tree full of cockroaches and a whole other host of really hard things this year that, if I'm honest, have me on my knees more out of desperation than exceedingly great joy. And I remember staring into our Christmas tree the night before our daughter Kayla was born, being told that there was a hole in her heart, being told that she probably wouldn't make it through a birth, and if she did, it would be a very hard road. And I remember staring into those lights, and for sure the posture of my heart was falling on my face before Jesus, begging for a miracle, right? A couple nights ago, I spent a night in the NICU on my knees again, begging Jesus for a miracle. And as I've been remembering all of these times, I am reminded that it all belongs. It all belongs, right? Every chapter of our story leads us to the only constant that we have, Jesus. And each time we come to him and our souls long to adore him and to fall down and worship him, to fall at his feet and beg for whatever it is that we need in that moment of our lives, we feel the gravity and his presence commands that we fall. It's the response of our soul to him is to fall. And then we feel the lifting. Then we feel the lifting. He doesn't leave us on our face in the dirt. He doesn't. And if we don't have the strength to stand in the moment that he takes our hand and tells us to rise, I believe that he'll just lay in the dirt with us until we do. I believe that he will. And when we rise, we are changed. We're changed. We can't forget that part. That's the best part. Let's look in Corinthians 15. But let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery I'll probably never fully understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You'll hear a blast to end all blast from a trumpet, and in that time that it took you to look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true. Death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O oh death? O oh death, who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening and law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, and death are gone. The gift of our master, Jesus Christ, 
Thank God. Bad, you can come up. So this is the truth, church. This is the hope that came to earth the day that that baby was born in Bethlehem. And maybe the Magi didn't fully grasp it, like that scripture just said. It's a mystery we'll never understand. Maybe the Magi didn't fully grasp it that day, but they fell down anyway. And maybe Simeon and Peter and Mary and Lazarus and Jairus and the lepers and the lame and the broken, maybe they didn't fully grasp it, but they fell down anyway. And maybe we, in our crazy lives, don't fully grasp it, but I pray that we'll fall down anyway. I pray that that innate response of our soul to Jesus will happen today and every day. Because while it's a mystery we don't fully understand, we see again and again and again that when we fall before Jesus to adore him, his call to us is to rise, to rise. So I pray that we'll fall to our knees anyway and behold Jesus and marvel and believe and adore. And as we give way to this gravity, as we give way to it, may we also feel the lifting to look into his eyes and receive his mercy and grace and hear his voice telling us to rise and go. So let's pray. Jesus, we hear your invitation today to fall. And it might sound like a really beautiful invitation that fills our hearts with joy. And it might sound like a really scary one because we might not think we know where we're going to land. But God, I pray that you just hold out your hand to us today for whatever our reason is for falling. I pray that we trust it. I pray that we trust the grace and truth and mercy in your eyes. I pray that we believe that you'll lay in the dirt with us as long as we need to lay there. And I pray that as we feel the gravity, we also feel the lifting. So God, today we fall, and it is enough and it is everything. In your name we pray.